Hysterical people, I am thrilled today to welcome Nancy Cardenas Pena from Abortion on Our Own Terms, which is an amazing organization. You're going to hear a lot about it today. She's going to tell us all about medical abortion, which is something that I didn't even know about. You know, when I had my abortion, it didn't exist. So, really thrilled to welcome Nancy to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me, Nancy. Hi, happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about abortion on our own terms and how you got involved and why you're involved in that? Yeah, absolutely. So abortion on our own terms is a national campaign meant to destigmatize self-managed abortion. And when I say self-managed abortion, what I mean is an abortion procedure that happens outside of a clinic, that happens outside of a former healthcare setting. Self-managed abortion can look a lot of different ways. The most common one is medication abortion, which we're going to talk a little bit about. But Honestly, self-managed abortion is an abortion procedure that happens within the comfort of your own home. And, you know, these instructions and the way to have a self-managed abortion are available to anyone who wants to learn more about it. I've been doing this work for a good while. So I started doing this work, gotta say, maybe 10 years ago. And the way that I got into this work was someone peer pressured me into testifying against HB2 in Texas, which was... Um, a while back. And so with this stress and peer pressuring, I testified at the state and started talking about the community that I live in, which is the Rio Grande Valley. And so because I knew that there were a lot of people who were going to be absolutely devastated by abortion restrictions, it sort of catapulted my work and sort of my vision for what I wanted to do. And I really wanted to get more involved with, you know, abortion in general. I had a self-managed abortion. So when I had a self-managed abortion, you know, and when I was finally ready to sort of share my story, I remember speaking to folks about it. And some folks would give me these sort of these looks of like, oh, you know, wasn't that dangerous? Or, oh, that must have been your last resort. Oh, you lived in Texas. It makes sense because you have no other options. And, you know, this isn't the way that it looks like for everyone. You know, everyone deserves as many options as possible. But for me, having a self-managed abortion with medication was something that felt really empowering. It felt very liberating. It felt like I was truly making an autonomous decision over what I wanted to do about my own body. And it was something that's completely safe, something that's very common, and something that's been used for decades. And so I really wanted to get more into the work of like trying to work at that stigma, trying to make sure that other people just like me weren't met with those stares, weren't met with those awkward conversations. And so I joined Abortion on Our Own Terms as their campaign director, and I've been here ever since. Fantastic. I love it. I think some of us who were older didn't even realize self-managed abortion was a thing. And it wasn't even until, honestly, I was out on the road literally filming the documentary that I came across somebody who wanted to share their story and their story was a self-managed abortion. And that was the first time I'd ever even honestly really thought about it. So wonderful that this exists, um, didn't exist when I needed my abortion uh, back in the 80s, but I'm so glad that it has existed for over 20 years. And why don't you 
tell us a little bit about the process. Just, you know, you don't have to go into all the details, but just kind of give those that don't know, like I didn't know kind of what happens. Like I said, self-managed abortion can look a lot of different ways. And sometimes there are a lot of cultural and spiritual practices attached to self-managed abortion. And so, you know, there's herbal abortions, there's different methods of terminating your pregnancy. But the most common practice is having and using two different types of medications. One is called misoprostol and one is called mifepristone. And, you know, incredibly effective very common. If you are using mifepristone and misoprostol together, uh, mifepristone is sort of the first pill that you use, and then you use four misoprostol pills. You can also, however, just use misoprostol alone, and it's still incredibly effective. And so there is some recovery time when we're talking about a self-managed abortion with medication abortion, but it is something that has been commonly utilized. It's something that people are still utilizing to this day, and it's something that's incredibly safe and effective. So medication abortion works differently than what you would think about when you consider like weight limits for plan B, for example. And so there aren't really weight limits for medication abortion. There are FDA standards of when you should take medication abortion, but I will say that those vary depending on the political nature of your state. Um, and so, you know, with Texas, there are different types of restrictions, but we see medication abortion being used throughout the world. And you have activists from Latin America, you have activists who are doing accompaniment who use medication abortion much later than people think that it can be used. So past the 12 weeks, past the 16 weeks, past the 20 weeks even. And so it's not a matter of does it become unsafe? It's just a matter of, you know, the more time that you have, uh, the less effective it may be. However, it's still very, very effective. And so it really just depends on the person. And I guess... When people are going through this, I mean, they're really not alone. I guess this is one of the reasons why abortion on our own terms even exists, right? Because you provide support for folks that are going through that. Is that correct? So we provide resources and information and we connect them with folks who are doing this work already. And so it's really important that we cultivate and create an environment when people have very strong support systems for the decisions that they're making. We know that the majority of people who have abortions are already parents. And so when we're trying to cultivate these support systems and make sure that folks have access to the correct information, it's important to include everyone in that conversation. And so we really just want to make sure that folks have access to those resources and are not ashamed about the decisions that they're making because they're not alone. Yeah. So when I was out filming, uh, we're not going back. That was when I learned about the existence of medical abortion. And I also learned about the existence of crisis pregnancy centers. That's their term. We should call them anti-abortion centers. And the fact that they are so annoying, and I've talked about them on this podcast before, and the fact that they outnumber abortion centers by more than three times, probably, depending on the state. But to remind those of my listeners, crisis pregnancy centers are evil places that are basically funded by the religious right and are set up oftentimes like across the street or down the road from an abortion center. They're like Starbucks, one on every other corner. And they basically are trying to lure in the vulnerable and ignorant people who might need abortions to try to convince them to not get one. You know, they're basically doing the Bible's work or the God's work and all that bullshit. 
So anyway, under that context, more recently, crisis pregnancy centers, or maybe not that much recently, um, but at least from what I learned in the last year or so, they've been basically pushing this total bogus bullshit information about the idea that you can reverse a self-managed abortion in process or in the middle before you take the second drug. Tell us about that and tell us why it's false. Yeah. So a little more context for crisis pregnancy centers, you know, at the end of the day, they are false clinics. They provide false information and they are heavily funded by the state. And so even in conversations here in Texas around false clinics, we would often have to advocate against funding crisis pregnancy centers at millions upon millions of dollars, which if you look at Texas, what we really need is infrastructure. We need access to healthcare, And this is something that false clinics were not providing. So it's not surprising that false clinics are pushing an agenda and a narrative that, you know, they're is such a thing as an abortion reversal when it's not true. Um, you have to look at the way that information is provided and people have to make informed decisions about how they would like to see their healthcare. And if you're going to a place that limits the amount of information that you're receiving and you know dissuades you from making a decision that works for you, then they're probably not gonna be the best voice when it comes to you deciding what your healthcare looks like. And so it's absolutely not true that there is an abortion reversal medication or a method. And it's really, really important that folks stay informed regarding, you know, all of these healthcare decisions. Yeah. And they lie to people too. They tell them that their pregnancy is not as far along as it may be so that they can essentially punt to get them outside of the windows that are available in some of these more restrictive states so that then they no longer can get have an abortion um, or have to go out of state in order to do it. So yeah, it's been really horrible. And the fact that medical abortion exists is so wonderful. But then the fact that, you know, they're using these tactics and these lies to yeah, basically yeah. try to keep people from seeking that route as an option. Yeah, yeah I'm, I mean, like, I think when we're talking about state and the actors that fund false clinics, we have to absolutely look at the makeup of our legislatures. And even in, you know, states like California, even in like really friendly states, that fight is never over. And so a lot of the questions that I also get is like, what folks can do to help states like Texas, what folks can do to help states like Ohio, for example. And I think a big chunk of that conversation is not only including false clinics and the way that they falsely distribute information within our communities, um, but also just recognizing that there are so many proactive measures that people can do in their own communities to make sure that they set up a solid foundation where we don't have to go back, we don't have to go back to all of these different things, and we ensure that people have access to information and resources. Yes, absolutely. And I think whatever state you're in, you can vote for the right people that are going to keep these crisis pregnancy centers at bay or out of the state would be ideal, um, but not always an option. I think in Illinois and maybe Massachusetts, a few blue states, they have actually put in laws to basically dampen the disinformation, making it illegal to provide disinformation to people. So I don't know how they're going to enforce that, but I think that's a start. You know, that's a good place. And you were talking about the state funding these crisis pregnancy centers. I don't know that I fully realized that. I knew that a lot of the money comes from the religious right and those organizations. But at the end of the day, I guess a lot of them are still, or not the organizations, but the people, the Bible thumpers who have been elected are the ones that are going to make the state budgets include uh, funds for these anti 
by abortion centers is my preferred term for them. Yeah. So there's always a group of folks advocating for what they feel is best, right? We advocate constantly for folks to have access to information and resources and, you know, for abortion care. And so, of course, uh, the opposition has their own forces of lobbying at various levels of government. And so something that is very, very, very notable is how strong they are when it comes to funding, you know, crisis pregnancy centers or, you know, anti-abortion centers or false clinics. We can give them a lot of different names. At the end of the day, they're providing a disservice to our communities by disinformation and making sure that folks do not have access to the information that they need. But yeah, they are funded by the millions. Um, and I mean millions of dollars. And it and it's not like that funding has stopped. It's not like that funding has paused. It's not like it's decreasing. Um, it's only increasing, you know, every legislative session that we get. And so it's really, really important to identify and also hold those elected officials accountable, you know, because they are at the end of the day making those decisions to continue funding these entities. Obviously, the existence of medical abortion is so important for, for us. And as somebody who came from a pharmaceutical development background, you know, the idea that these drugs ex exist is so important. Um, but let's get into the idea that at least one of the drugs may no longer exist or may, may be pulled from the market. As part of these lots of different tactics, we just talked about the crisis pregnancy centers, but now another tactic is to try to literally get rid of one of the two drugs that is used for these self-banished abortions, mifepristone. So I'll tell you a little bit about what I know, and then you can kind of jump in because I'm sure you know more than I do. So I think it was like in April or sometime around that time, springtime last year, I remember the big rally to kind of get mad at it was in April, basically. So this is after Roe fell. You know, all these different states, of course, are doing all these crazy laws to try to put bans in place. But the worst thing, I think, for the entire country would be getting rid of mifepristone from the market. And there's a lawsuit that I guess is claiming that mifepristone has some safety issues, which is ridiculous because it's been safely used and on the market for over 20 years, 23 or something like that. So I don't know where they come up with this stuff. But basically, this lawsuit was approved by a Trump-appointed judge, Kazmarek, in Amarillo, Texas. Big surprise. Sorry. Sorry for you. But Texas is on my shit list. Texas is the new Florida, as far as I'm concerned. So just coincidence that this guy came out of Texas, I guess. But um, I think that they actually it's not a coincidence. I should step back because I believe that they specifically picked that court or somehow that region or whatever so that they thought that the lawsuit would end up with this guy or other conservative judges in that region or whatever it is. This is a judge with no medical background, just agreed with all these bullshitters and ruled to pull mifepristone from the market. Now, that was stayed very quickly, I believe, and it has been stayed ever since. Ultimately, I think it got bumped back and forth from a few different courts. And at the moment, it's going to be making its way up to the Supreme Court, which will ultimately rule. So at the moment, right Right now, mifepristone is available on the market, but we're worried that this Supreme Court, I don't know, I don't have a lot of faith in them. So what can you tell me about this lawsuit that I missed? Yeah, so so a lot of things on what you talked about, and I think something that I will begin and something that resonates with me is how other states continuously shit on Texas. Um, and I want to be very, very clear, there is a way to do this when we are criticizing our governments and the people in charge without throwing the people who live here under the bus, because oh. I kindly remind everyone who doesn't live in Texas or doesn't live in the States, 
that, you know, we've been doing this for a really, really long time. And ever since these abortion restrictions started coming in, we've sort of been, you know, sounding the alarm to everyone else because this was going to be an issue that affected everyone. And I think just when we're talking about our movement and we're talking about people who do this work, we have to think about how you know, if one of us isn't free, then none of us are free. If one of us isn't getting the health care that we need, then none of us are getting the health care that we need. And I think this solidarity and, you know, moving forward is how we really should be thinking about this entire thing. And so this decision did come out of Amarillo. And, you know, you're right, like this was purposely made to come out of very, very conservative court decisions. And I think one thing that I keep hearing back and forth is even though there is this guidance or direction to the FDA, does the FDA have to adhere to this or not? You know, and then we keep having these court decisions back and forth. The Supreme Court has decided to take up this case, although it didn't take up the entirety of the case. It took little pieces of it. And I want to also highlight that, you know, even though we're having these conversations, it's really, really important that we operate outside of a bubble and understand that this back and forth, this chaotic legal back and forth, is causing so much confusion in our communities as to what is legal and what isn't. And it's also this, this way of tying legality with our morality. When you know we think of things that are meant to be illegal and our government tends to make us believe that therefore they are bad things. And so it causes this confusion and this chaos. And it's up to us as shepherds of this information, having access to all of these resources to be able to communicate with communities and tell them what is real and what isn't. You know, because like I said, as we're doing this back and forth and trying to figure out what this means, what the repercussions are. And yes, this is a decision that affects everyone. There are communities that don't have access to this information. And this is ultimately a very intentional deterrent for people who are trying to access abortion care. And so I will always reiterate correct information, right information, but also just reiterating and bringing it home that people who live in these states still deserve access to healthcare. And there are people who are working on the ground who are working their asses off to make sure that people have access to this information, even though they don't live in blue states like the rest of the country. Fair enough. And my apologies. Uh, I absolutely love everybody in Texas, even the people who are voting for the bad legislatures. They need access too. I totally agree. And I, my apologies. When I badmouth Texas, I'm mainly talking about the legislature who are making these horrible, horrible laws because the people who live there are suffering. And that's, yeah, so my apologies. Yeah, Sorry. no, and we can have an entire conversation about how voting lives in Texas, because that is that is a whole nother can of worms. So if you yes. can imagine abortion restrictions, you can also imagine how these restrictions are affecting other sectors of the community. But, you know, we do have very terrible leadership. We do have a very terrible government. We have some very strong legislators who, you know, as terrible as the governor is, the lieutenant governor and the attorney general, some really strong legislators who are fighting tooth and nail to ensure that people have access to this information. And even though there are no in-clinic abortion care services anymore in Texas, that does not mean that the fight stops there and that's it. This fight continues and continues and continues. And I, you know, I personally think that this is a fight that will never end. You know, I know that we talk a lot about like 
there will be a point where abortion care will be available to everyone. And absolutely, we, we may get to a point where that is absolutely true. But in order to maintain that access and that freedom for people to decide, that struggle and that fight has to continue generation upon generation upon generation. Yes. And I will say, you know, the other thing about Texas is because Texas is sort of fighting so hard, being so oppressed, that a lot of these initial lawsuits came out of Texas that are for the good guys, the Zorowski lawsuit, um, which has now grown and plaintiffs from multiple states are on board with that. Uh, I believe it's led by the Center for Reproductive Rights, if I'm not mistaken, because there had been oppression even before Roe had been overturned in Texas. So that's where these new stories are coming out of. Unfortunately, the most recent being perhaps the first death that we know about as a result of the overturning of Roe v. Wade has just recently hit the news coming out of Texas as well. Uh, or maybe that was even before um, Roe v. Wade was overturned. But anyway, so yeah, Texas has a lot, I guess, because Texas is in the news so much and with the horrible legislature. And another thing that just happened a few months ago was Kate Cox was uh, denied care, just regular health care to, to save her ability, maybe Maybe not her life, but her ability to be able to get pregnant in the future. She had a fetus that was growing uncontrollably, was not a, a viable fetus, would never have survived to be a baby, and was basically told that she wasn't able to get the care that she needed. And that went back and forth through different legislature. Ultimately, the attorney general, again, another dude who has no medical background, I'm guessing, Ken Paxton, basically shot it all down. And, and even though it had been stayed, so she was going to get the care. Then the next day or even that night, like they pulled the plug on a Friday night, I remember. Yeah. So, you know, this goes back to just demonstrate how much chaos the legal back and forth creates and the very real impacts it has on people who are trying to get abortion care. And so Kate Cox was a woman who had to leave the state of Texas in order to receive the care that, you know, she needed. But ultimately, the attorney general also threatened medical institutions and told medical institutions that they would be under fire or basically under threat of any potential lawsuits should they choose to engage with this case and any other cases that could potentially have these sort of ramifications. But, you know, like at the end of the day, this is very basic healthcare that people are entitled to. These are decisions that should be reserved for the person who is affected and is making said decision. And so, this not only created a chilling effect for medical professionals who now have to take up these decisions on whether they can provide care for their patients or not, but it also just sort of highlights when we're talking about SBA, we're talking about other different types of restrictions, sort of the people who are most likely to report patients for this type of healthcare, and it's medical professionals and people who are close to them. And it is also because of this whole legal back and forth and this confusion that sometimes medical professionals do not know if they can provide the healthcare that they need to provide. And ultimately, a conversation that we have to have is how patients and how people can protect themselves and have access to the information that they need and not be reported to the state for essential health care. Right. 
or providing essential health care. Like you said, the physicians. I mean, Texas has some of the best medical schools in the country, for example. And I think that the applications have dropped by a certain percentage. Probably at least a lot, some of that is because people don't want to have to train where they can't learn all of the you know things that you might need to do as a OBGYN, for example. If you go to medical school in Texas, you might not get to learn DNC procedures and things you might need as general health care, as you said. Not only Texas, other states, Idaho, other states. And again, it's not the people that live there. But the legislatures, by making these laws, are really doing a disservice to the great things that are coming out of the state, like MD Anderson, for example, is wonderful. And um, it's a shame that their reputation may decrease slightly in that category because of a lack of the ability to do the procedures that are required as medical care. So I want to talk about the privacy issues a little bit with respect to um, talking about or obviously doing abortions. These healthcare professionals we were just talking about are not allowed to give abortions in some of these states, like Texas. But I know there was this vigilante portion of SB8 originally when it was put in place in Texas. And one of the folks, or a couple of the folks in my film, when I was talking with them about Texas, and this is slightly like both before and right after the Dobbs decision landed. So we really didn't have a lot of data on like what happened post row. But SB8 had been in place for over nine months at that point. And I think the vigilante portion, at least some people were saying that they thought it was really just a fear, like a fear thing to sort of get people to not do abortions. Because nobody at the end of the day really turned anybody else in. I guess there was one guy who I think I saw on the news who turned in his ex-girlfriend and her friends for driving her to get an abortion, something like that. So there was like maybe one incident, which I don't even know if that went anywhere. But the goal originally of this law or this extra thing being put in the law was more about fear and to just get people to be afraid to do anything because their neighbor, you know, oh my God, my neighbor's going to turn me in if they just even think that I'm having an abortion or even thinking about it. And I imagine at the time that that was just going to be mass chaos. And I guess like not a lot of people did take the action to turn people in, but maybe the fear was there. So maybe you can speak a little bit to that, you know, living in Texas. Yeah, absolutely. So several points to that. And one of them is the lawsuit that occurred from that situation of uh, the ex-partner of someone who wanted an abortion and received assistance or at least reached out to figure out more information around what their options were. That is still very ongoing litigation. Like it's still happening. It's still something that people are actively facing here in Texas. You know, I think there's a fine line to walk when we talk about how these restrictions are meant to appear and the way they are re realistically appearing on the ground. And sort of the, the model that I carry is it's this like English saying, and sometimes I have trouble remembering English sayings because uh, my Spanish tries to kick in, but it's the whole like, you know, if they tell you who you are, believe them. Mm. And this is how I feel about opposition. If they are telling you that they're going to potentially draw up lawsuits, especially to providers or people who are helping with abortion care, it's best to at least take the precautions to prepare yourself for that scenario. You know, there is ongoing litigation as well with several abortion funds and people who are trying to seek legal protection from lawsuits because they're under constant surveillance, under constant watch 
and constant threats to be deposed. So this is all still very much ongoing. And so a lot of people also assume because of the fall of Bro that this means all of the other previous restrictions just do not exist because you have this like overturn of Bro with the Dobbs decision and because there is no in-clinic abortion care in Texas, that means these other restrictions do not exist. But this is simply not true. And I think about it this way, and I think the way that I try to explain it to folks in various communities is that even though if we were to get any sort of legality back where, you know, suddenly the state of Texas says, you know what, we're going to have abortion in clinic care be legal again, and people have access to this. This is not a very simple solution because all of these different restrictions act as legal barriers. So even though we have this sort of like umbrella of legalization, each restriction still has to be fought in court to be overturned. And so SB8 is still very prevalent, even though the state of Texas had a trigger law based on some very, very old legislation that took effect after the decision. So we have that. We also had SB4, which created even more additional restrictions around medication abortion. We had telehealth restrictions as well. And so all of that is still in place. So even if we were to have a scenario where abortion in clinic care is legal again, we still have all of these different types of restrictions that people have to go through. And not only that, you know, we have immigrant communities in Texas. We have communities that are affected by various different things. So how important is it for folks to have access to legal abortion care when the same state is trying to bar those people from even existing in a state like Texas? So you have people who have access to reproductive health care, and we continuously talk about it, where abortion restrictions are bad, but they're going to look very different ways for different types of communities. And so while people are struggling to access abortion care, people may also be struggling with their immigration status because now cops can act as immigration agents and have mechanisms in place to incarcerate people who are undocumented and begin those deportation proceedings. So it's all interconnected. And so this is why I say it's not just a simple solution. It's not a one size fits all. It's about having these collaborations and solidarity around different communities, because if one of us isn't free, then none of us are free. Right. And that's definitely the way I feel in, you know, living in California, I'm no longer able to procreate, but it just, I'm not free because so many people are not free in these other states. So yeah, no, it just breaks my heart. And what you, what you said about undocumented, there's this new law or I think Biden administration is suing the state of Texas. I'm sorry to pick on Texas. But you guys are in the news because of this law that they're trying to basically say that they can act as ICE informants or whatever. Yeah, the Department of Justice has decided to sue the state of Texas, but this is the usual song and dance that always happens with controversial decisions. They keep playing this game of ping pong going back through different courts ultimately trying to get the Supreme Court to have a favorable decision over the case or try to gather as much time as possible without the law taking into effect and so forth and so forth. So this is the usual song and dance. I'm I'm not a stranger to this because this is exactly what happens with all controversial abortion-related legislative bills and laws. But the Biden administration also has to take a lot of responsibility when it comes to funding the deportation machine that enables Texas 
to successfully incorporate all of this different type of legislation. And so this is also when we have these conversations, I talk about how there's so much work to be done in different communities. And it isn't that people have to come to Texas to do this work, but there's so much creative avenues and proactive things that people can do in their own backyards. Well, let's talk about proactive things that people can do. What can people do that don't live in Texas? So I think it's definitely participating in different legislative levels. And there's this thing in California with the Beverly Clinic as well. And so it's just different types of advocacy. It's also, it's it's something that I think folks want to hear this, like, what do we do? Where do we get, you know, where do we, you know, put in all of our energy? And it's not a simple answer because it's not going to be a simple solution. This isn't going to be something that's, you know, fixed overnight. People definitely should have access to information and resources. Our own website also has an avenue for folks who are interested in learning more. There's also Plan C that has a lot of information around how to access care and all of the accurate information in order to make informed decisions. But it's also just, we have this opportunity. We have the fall of Roe. We had the stop decision. But even though we had this like blanket legality of Roe v. Wade, there were still a lot of states that did not have access to abortion care. So I want people to actually think about it and stop and say, what kind of world do they want to create? what is holding us back? We don't have this like legal federal protection, basically. We have states incorporating different types of legislative decisions. But honestly, like, what can we do now? We have the ability to dream as big as we want. And instead of conceding towards restrictions or gestational limits, we can work towards creating a world where our liberation is collective, our liberation is tied together. And that's the world that I want to work towards. Absolutely. I love that. Just a couple episodes ago, we had Emma Lee from Smish Martian 101, who's a legal scholar, and she was talking about all the legal strategies that she's been cooking up in her brain to put back row, but on steroids and like strengthen protections across the country and therefore ultimately the states. And, you know, she complains that the original row decision was kind of loose. It was based on privacy and it wasn't really based on fundamental health care or reproductive rights. And she wants to put it back, but in a much more strengthened situation so that we can have better protections moving forward. And we'll never find ourselves in this situation again, which would be good. There are so many really great advocates and people People who are doing this work, who are going to continue providing care, those resources and information that people need. Well, this is fantastic, Nancy. I learned a lot and I hope my listeners did too. I appreciate you coming on to the podcast today and giving us all of the information about self-managed abortion and the resources that are available and all of the things that people need to know about that. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. And, you know, by all means, I'm, I'm open to any questions. Fantastic. Thank you so much, everybody. Be sure to check out abortiononourownterms.org and you can find them on their social media handles at abortion on our own terms as well. Thank you, Nancy, for doing this wonderful work, amazing stuff that you're doing over there. And just really appreciate you taking some time today to help educate Absolutely. us. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Okay, everybody, stay hysterical. We are the universe, so beautiful. Through all of the hurt, we'll stand. Invincible, so beautiful. We'll take on the world. the world.